Good evening. It's really good to be with you all tonight. Thank you so much for your presence, especially those that are visiting. I'm very thankful that you chose to be here with us, and that's an encouragement to me, and I know everyone else here as well. Um, a couple of you even knew I was preaching tonight, and you showed up anyway, so I appreciate that. Um, that as well. And I appreciate your encouragement and your kind words you've said uh, throughout the day. Looking forward to, uh, to tonight. Tonight, I want to talk about worship and the idea of true worship. We're given a picture in the Bible of what true worship is. And many of us don't understand, I think, today, and just in our culture, what it means to truly worship. What, what true worship is, is described by the Bible. In our culture, uh, you know, we're proud, successful Americans that don't, uh, you know, think worshiping a higher power is something that uh, might be looked down on. It's a sign of weakness, perhaps, that, oh, you can't do that yourself. You've got to worship some, acknowledge something greater than you. And so there's a, there's a culture, and it could be misunderstood, this idea of worship. But Jesus, the perfect teacher, our perfect example, can teach us a lot about worship and about what it means to worship and what that looks like and what it means to be a true worshiper. And sometimes it can be uncomfortable, true worship. And so I want to start out briefly looking at a very quick overview of worship in the Old Testament. We're not going to get into nitty-gritty details of everything, but there's a couple of things that I want to look at and some, some basic observations that we can make about worship. And the first thing that I want us to look at this tonight is that worship has always been required by God. And we can go back to, uh, to the example of from the beginning, Cain and Abel, going back to Genesis chapter 4. And uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 3 says, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And in verse 6, God responded to Cain's anger said, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. So from the very beginning, we see that there was some sort of offering, some sort of worship or sacrifice that was, was expected by God, that, that, that was commonplace. Hebrews 11 and verse 4 gives us a little more context to that if we uh, look there and where it says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, um, through which he was commended as righteous and God commended him by accepting his gifts. So again, from the very beginning, we see worship was required or, or an expectation there by God and people who wanted to please God and serve God did so through sacrifice, through worship, through service, through, through their offerings there. But it's not only just been required or, or expected by God, but it's also been specifically prescribed by God. 
And we can just look to the Old Testament, to, to uh, you know, Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy and see the specific requirements that God gave his people in the way they were to worship, uh, the way they were to worship. And, you know, there were things that, you know, only certain people could perform certain functions. And uh, there was a proper way to dress. And there was a proper uh, way to select and prepare your offering. Um, there were things you had to do before bringing your, your offering to God. And this list could go on and on and on, all of these requirements and the way that God prescribed them to worship and to, to, uh, to serve. And there was a series of, of, of holy days and times of worship that they were to observe. Uh, days like the Passover, uh, Pentecost, the Day of Atonement. And the Feast of Booths. And if we were going to lump all those in together and say, what was the purpose of those days and of their worship that God prescribed? It was so that they would remember something. Each of those days and each of those feasts and, and, and times of worship were there to, as a monument, as a memorial for them to remember something that God did. Whether it was the Passover when they were to remember the day they were delivered from Egypt that God delivered them, the Pentecost, where they remember when they entered into the promised land. The Day of Atonement, they were to remember their sins and to humble themselves in a day of humility for them. Or the Feast of Booths or Tabernacle, where they were to remember God's care and providence for them in the wilderness. All of those had a purpose, and God required certain things at certain times for that purpose. And God expects worship to not only be done as he prescribes and in the right way, uh, but, but he expects it to be done in the right way. He expects it to be done correctly with the right motive and the right attitude. And we can look to the prophets because the, the people of Israel, God's people, um, were really bad at this. They, they, they would go through motions, they would go through worship, but it was not done in the right way. If you go to Micah chapter 6, and in, in, in verses six through eight there, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase, but the Lord through Micah warns his people that the physical actions aren't the purpose of worship. It's not the point of what they were doing. He said, he said you could bring thousands of rams. You could bring 10,000 rivers of oil. You could bring your firstborn in sacrifice. But God wouldn't be pleased with those actions. God wouldn't be pleased with that unless those actions of worship reflected their heart. Unless it reflected their motives. Unless they were living righteously. Unless they were doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. Amos dealt with a very similar, similar problem. and He went so far to say that God hates Worship that is not offered with the proper motive and not offered with the proper attitude and not done in the right way. So God expects worship to be done in the right way with the right attitude. But he doesn't want our worship if we're not already living trying to please him, trying to do his will, if we're not doing the things he has asked us to do and if we're not doing it in, in that way. First Samuel 15 
the account of uh, Saul, and uh, right after he uh, he was supposed to uh, destroy all of the Amalekites. He, w- he was commanded by God to destroy the, the Amalekites and everything that around him, all the spoils. He wasn't supposed to take anything, wasn't supposed to spare anybody. And in that chapter, we see he spared King Agag and he set up a monument for himself. And then when Samuel shows up, he was so, uh, he was so proud of himself. He said, look, look at what I'm doing. I set up this monument. I'm, I'm sacrificing all these great sheep I just got. And the king's over here. We got him set aside. Everything's going great. Look, look at all these things I'm doing for God. And Samuel replied in verse 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice. So God expects worship to be done in the right way, in a certain manner. And it's not done in the right way if we're not obedient in the way we do it. And if we don't have the right attitude and the right motive in the way that we, we worship. And so that's a brief overview, very brief overview of worship in the Old Testament. And there's a lot more we could say about that. But I want to switch gears for a few minutes and move to the New Testament and, and look for the remainder of our time at what we see in the New Testament about worship. Um, because as we read through the Gospels, there's a change that's occurring. And there's a transformation taking place in God's people and the expectations on, and on God's people. And, and there's a man going from town to town into Galilee, Judea, Samaria, that's emphasizing a new way to worship and a new way to serve the Lord. So if you turn only to John chapter 4, this is going to be our main, main text. We'll have two, two main texts tonight, and John 4 is the first one. And Jesus is talking about a new worship, a true worship in John chapter 4, in contrast to what the, the woman at the well will look at, uh, thought worship was, and what it had been. Um, and, and frankly, this is probably the thing, what Jesus describes here is probably what worship was supposed to be all along in the Old Testament. It's what they were supposed to be doing the entire time, but they had lost sight of that. And he's coming to refocus and, and put, put, put some focus on what worship was supposed to be. But so Jesus, the son of God, came down to earth. He's, he's born into this Jewish culture and he lived a perfect life, keeping the laws, keeping the commandments. Um, in a life of obedience and devotion. So if there was anyone who ever lived that could tell us what, how God expects worship to be performed and, and what worship was, it would be him. He faced the same temptations we did. He, he, he faced the same struggles that every man faces, but he overcame those. And just imagine when he comes across people who were professing to follow his father, and saying, this is how we worship. We know how to worship. And he's seeing the, you know, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, and he's looking at how they're living their lives and how they're teaching, treating others and teaching others to live their lives and, and, and how they're worshiping. What did he do? He condemned them. He condemned their worship and their actions, and, and he left his own teachings an example. And so John, John 4 is one of those examples. And, and here he's, he's talking with a woman at the well, and it's a conversation that, that many of us are familiar with. But I wanted to read briefly verses 19 through 24. He said, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, 
The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship. And so what I really want to focus on here. This is a larger part, uh, part of a larger conversation that's taken place between Jesus and this, and this woman at the well. And she says, so our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You, the Jews say we need to go to Jerusalem to worship. Which one's right? What, where do I need to go to worship? And he, he comes in and, and he says, uh, he says, that is not what we're, what, what worship is about. Now there is a new, new worship. The true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And what I want to suggest tonight is, is God's people who are wanting to be people who the Father is seeking, we need to strive to be true worshipers. We need to strive to be the people the, that the Father is seeking, and it's those who are worshiping in spirit and truth. So that should be our goal. So a couple of observations about what, a, what true worship is and, and, and what we can pull, pull from this. And the first observation I want to make is kind of an obvious one. But true worshipers will worship. And so you can't be a worshiper. You can't be a true worshiper without worship. And... But in order to do that, we need to know what it means to worship. So if we were to look at a, a dictionary definition, it's paying homage to a deity, uh, assigning worth to a person or object, uh, most commonly in, in a religious, in a religious uh, format, in a religious manner. And so it's, it's assigning worth, it's paying homage to some, someone greater than, than ourselves. And, and so that, that's looking at the dictionary. The, the word that Jesus uses here is uh, in the New Testament Greek, it's proskuneo. The same word in uh, the Old Testament translated uh, is, is shakai, I guess. That's about as good as I'm going to get there. And that's as far as my Greek and Hebrew scholarship goes. But basically, this is the, these are some of the more common words that are translated to for the concept of worship when we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we've already looked at uh, some of those. Uh, we'll, we'll look at a couple of them again. But it means to bow down. This word worship that Jesus uses means to bow down, to prostrate oneself, to lay flat on the ground. Physically demonstrating your complete submission to uh, acknowledging that the one you have fallen down before is in complete control and is mightier and more powerful than you. In ancient culture, I like to, you know, I think back to, you know, movies where you've got this, this, this battle taking place and the loser of the battle kneels down and surrenders their sword, kneels down, bending their head down in submission to the victor and, and acknowledging, um, you know, falling in their knees, acknowledging their, their allegiance, their, their need for mercy. You know, the victor at that point could kill the, the, the one bowing down, the victor could, uh, could, could spare them. But after demonstrating the, their superiority in that battle, his great might and superiority, he has the power in that relationship. He has the, the power and, and is in complete control 
And as the one who is bowing and prostrating, you're acknowledging and demonstrating that complete control and, and, and that complete submission to the victor. And that's the, 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 the posture and the concept that Jesus is talking about here when he talks about worshiping. So the true worshiper will worship. Does that relationship between the victor and the, the, uh, the, the, the loser sound familiar to, to our relationship today? Does that have some application to the Christian's life today? God has, has all control, has all power, and we are the ones who, who, should, who, who should bow down and, and worship him, submitting to him, submitting our allegiance, begging for mercy. So we see these words in several places in the scriptures, and we see this concept, and, you know, uh, not, not going to turn there, but in Numbers chapter 20, Moses and Aaron fell on their face. Uh, using this word, they fell on their face when approaching God with a petition for water uh, while they were in the wilderness. And so we see they, they it showed their respect and, and worship of God in that way. Job, in Job chapter 1, after, losing, after being humbled and losing his health, his family, his wealth, the first thing he does is bow down uh, to the ground and worship he falls to the ground and worships. The same word, the same idea. In Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra and the people, when, the, when uh, they bowed their head to the ground, the same word, the same idea as the word was being read, as God's word was being read. And we also see this in Jesus' life. And when people came to encounter Jesus throughout his life, this same concept is used. In Matthew chapter 2, the wise men, when they came to Jesus, when he was born, they bowed down, presenting him the, their gifts. In Matthew chapter 8, the leper, uh, before even being healed, knelt before him using the, the, this concept and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Not only showing humility, but showing faith. Jesus hadn't even done anything at that point, And he was worshiping him, acknowledging so when people encountered Jesus realizing who he was and what he was capable of doing, they acknowledged it in reverence, in submission, in confidence, and by prostrating themselves to the ground, by, by following this, this example, worshiping and confessing their faith in him. And that's, that's the worship that Jesus is teaching about. That's the word, that's the concept that Jesus is, is using here when he's talking to the woman at the well. The true worshiper will worship. And, and when I think about this and look at these examples, I, I have to stop and ask myself the question, when's the last time that I have proskuneo uh, before God? When was the last time that I have prostrated myself, completely humbled myself in complete submission, complete humility, either physically or in, in my heart, in, in my mind, that, that's not easy for us to do. Like I mentioned at the outset, that's not an easy thing for us to do. That's not comfortable to admit that I, I can't do things myself. And I can't, I am not all powerful. There is someone more powerful than myself. Maybe you got uncomfortable thinking about that question and thinking about that, taking that posture. I mean, we're Americans. We're about freedom, 
We're about, you know, we don't bow to anybody. We don't lower ourselves before others. That's not something we do in our culture. That's a foreign concept to us. But even as members of the Lord's church, we have to have this mindset when it comes to worshiping God. When it comes to our worship, are we really truly worshiping? Are we truly submitting ourselves, our whole selves, to his will? Are we, or are we holding back some part of our life? Are we holding back some part of ourselves? Are we really truly demonstrating our acknowledgement of God's superiority and his might and what he's capable of? Or do we sometimes put our faith and trust in something else, someone else, ourself? Or, uh, you know, are we truly assigning worth and honor to our creator and Lord? Are, are we doing that? Or are our hearts and minds and time and resources potentially focused somewhere else? These are questions that we could be uncomfortable for us to ask, but I think if we want to be true worshipers, as Jesus is, is, is describing here, if we want to be the ones that the Father is seeking, we need to consider, consider that. The, the second piece, and I, I'm not advancing here, apologize. The second thing I want us to take a look at, the second observation is that the true worshiper, worshiper will worship the Father. In Exodus chapter 20, as Moses came down from Mount Sinai after receiving the Ten Commandments uh, from the God who had just delivered his people from Egyptian slavery. Sorry, there we go. Um, these were the first word, these were the Lord's first words that Moses read to them uh, from, from the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness, or anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water, or under the earth. You shall not bow down, there's our word again, to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Notice God considers worship to any other instead of him as hating him, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So a couple, a couple observations about this idea about where the true worshiper's focus should be. Idolatry today doesn't have to look like it did in the Old Testament. I've got a picture of a golden calf up here. Michael gave me a hard time about that earlier. Uh, we don't have golden calves around here that are, that are keeping us from, from keeping our focus on the Lord and, and worshiping the Lord. But we do have idols. Uh, several years ago, uh, Brother Bunting had a definition of what an idol is, and it stuck with me. I wrote it down, and, and it's really stayed with me. He said, anything we cannot let go of in order to press on to the goal, becomes an idol. Anything we can't let go of that, that keeps us from pressing on to the goal becomes an idol. And all idols are not inherently evil in themselves, but all idols do destroy souls. So things can become idols in our lives that don't look like a golden calf, don't look like something that, that would be uh, that, that would be distracting, would be take our focus from God, but we can let it take our focus from God. We can let it uh, become between us and God. And this is an important concept 
when we're thinking about a true worshiper and, and where he, he's putting that worship, where he's putting his focus, if there's anything in our lives that we just can't let go of, there's anything in our minds is distracting us, taking, uh, you know, taking up too much of our thoughts, keeping us from putting our worshipful focus on the Lord. God's a jealous God. He, he considers, as we saw in Exodus 20, he, he considers that the same thing as hating him. If we are putting other things, letting other things cloud our mind, cloud our focus. And the same thing when we come together to worship. When we are worshiping, if other things are in our mind, other things are, are we are not focusing on the Lord. The, that's something that we need to, to consider as we worship and, and strive to become true worshipers. There are many other examples uh, where we see in Scripture God being the focus of uh, uh, of worship, um, I've got a couple of them down. Psalm one forty six. I want to read this psalm. I'm going to pass pass on the other two here. Um, but Psalm one forty six, I think, is a great example uh, and and a very convincing case that the psalmist lays out for who should receive our worship. He says, "Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul." I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord of his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. There's no confusion over who the psalmist is praising in this psalm right here. It is focused 100% on the Lord, or the Father. And in Philippians 4, 8, we're not going to look at it, but, but I encourage you, Paul, Paul gives the, the brethren in Philippi directions on, on where their minds and hearts should be focused. And in that verse, I think, is a great description of God the Father and showing that he is worthy of our focus. He's worthy of our worship. And then as, uh, as was read earlier, Revelation chapter four, you can't have a sermon about worship unless thinking about worship without having that great throne scene where you have the, the living creatures, the elders bowing down, worthy are you, our Lord and God. But I wanna share these examples because the true worshiper doesn't lose focus of the recipient of their worship. God is a jealous God and expects his people's worship to be on him and him alone. And when we let other things come in between him and us, and when we let other things come between our worship and him, it, it, it's not true worship. We, we are misguided and we are not in, in, in the right the right spot. Jesus showed his, his, his disciples how to pray in Matthew uh, chapter 6. And how did he start 
his prayer? How did he start his, his, his worship? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is in heaven. The true worshiper's worship should be directed toward the Father who is worthy, who has done great things. What happened to the people of Israel when they did not worship the Father, when they lost sight of the Father, when the Lord was not their, their, uh, their focus of worship? Well, sometime between crossing the Red Sea, when they sang a new song and were praising God for his deliverance, and getting to the base of the Mount Sinai, after following a cloud of fire and pillar and being given water and food, sometime between in that short period of time, they lost their focus and they put their worship on a, a false God, on something that was not, not the Lord. And it, it can easily happen. It can easily take away our focus and, and challenge our worship. Next observation I want to take a look at here. Just a few more. The true worshiper will worship in spirit. I want to suggest that according to Jesus, it's not just our actions that make up true worship. It's not just praying. It's not just singing. It's not just reading the word. It's not just bowing down. It's not only those physical actions the same way we saw. It wasn't just those physical actions in the Old Testament of, of he could have sacrificed 10,000 rams. True worshipers worship in spirit. If our spirit isn't right, then we aren't truly worshiping. If our heart and our attitude, our motive, how we live, living righteously is part of that. They play just as much a role in our worship as the physical acts that we participate in. And we, we, we addressed that earlier when we looked at the Old Testament. The true worshiper's worship, in contrast to the question that the woman asks, is not any longer about technical and materialistic physical aspects. The woman asked, do I go to the mountain or do I go to Jerusalem? Where do I go? Where, where do I have to be for this to be okay? And that's not what Jesus said here with, with this idea. He, he says there's now a, there, there's a new emphasis it's not on how many animals you kill and that you do it on a certain day while eating a certain kind of food. The emphasis is on your attitude. It's on your heart. It's on what you are bringing to God, your thoughts and your intentions, how we serve those around us, our relationships with each other. The, 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 that, that is part of worshiping in spirit. The worship of, uh, true worship of God seeks, the, the, the worship that God seeks is spiritual in nature. Verse 24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And if we're going to truly worship God who is spirit, we have to worship in spirit with the tools that he created us. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. True worship, worship in spirit is a fully engaging worship. Engaging the spirit as well as the mind. But we can't stop here because Jesus doesn't stop here. He goes on and says, it's also done in truth. True worship is also done in truth. In John chapter 17, 
Verse 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And so if God's word is truth and we are to be true worshipers, worshiping in spirit and truth, we need to worship according to God's word to be worshiping in truth. We're familiar with the passage in Colossians 3.16 the, 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 uh, and what it says about our song worship, where we talk about, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. But in the very next verse, verse 17, Paul writes, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I would say worshiping God what is part of whatever we do. True worship is part of whatever we do, and it needs to be in the name of our Lord Jesus. It needs to be under his submission and what he has asked us to do. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12, because we're going to kind of make a couple final observations here. How do we become true worshipers? What, what does that look like for us? We, we saw Jesus describes the true worshiper as worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. I think Romans chapter 12, when I read these first two verses, it contains all of the elements of true worship that Jesus describes. Um, so let's go ahead and just read the, these first two verses and then make a couple, couple observations here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in this passage, I believe that Paul describes how we become true worshipers. What is it that that, what is it that we're supposed to do? He says, present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice. The Old Testament, they were sacrificing goats and sheep and, and all, all sorts of other things. Today, at true worshipers, we should be presenting our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. One that is acceptable to God. That is our spiritual worship. Presenting our bodies means giving, God, uh, giving to God all of ourselves, everything that makes us who we are. Our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, they are all to be presented to God in humility. All to be presented to God as a sacrifice, completely submitting ourselves to him, prostrating ourselves before him in worship to him. I don't think Paul is just talking here about the two or three hours a week we're here in this building. I don't think true worship starts the second we walk in the door and then the second we leave, true worship ends. This is what he's describing here, something bigger than what we do for the short amount of time we're here together. True worship involves all of ourselves, our whole selves. That means when we're not here. And we're to do it in a way that is acceptable to God in truth, based on his authority, what he wants, and not only what is pleasing to us. What motivates true worshipers, though? I think we can find that here as well. What motivates the true worshiper? Why do we worship? Well, Paul says, by the mercies of God, this is what we do. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What are the mercies of God? 
who he is, what he has done for us, the mercy that he shows us, the blessings that he, he has given us. He has created us. He's protected us. He has saved us. He's given us everything that we don't deserve. That should motivate us to give all of ourselves to him. And that won't even come close to paying him back. But that's all we can do. Why do we worship? We worship because we need to be in tune with God's mercies. We need to be aligned to them. We need to understand and remember them, just like remembering what God had done in the Old Testament for the people of Israel. Acknowledging that his mercies are true, his power, his existence, that he lived on this world, that he has saved us. We need to acknowledge those mercies, and that, that is what motivates us to give our full selves. And then the other thing I think we see here is the result of true worship. What happens when we truly worship? And that's the last point that, that we'll make tonight. What should happen when we worship? What, why does God want us to worship him so badly? Why, why does he need that? Why, why is it so, something so important that he required it from his people from the beginning? Well, it's, it says, be trans, do not be conformed to this world in verse 2, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. I want to suggest to you tonight that true worship can transform. True worship changes. And when you go through the things that we've talked about, you're not going to come out the same person you were when you started. True worship transforms you. It renews your mind. What do I mean? I'm not talking about a miraculous transformation. You come into worship, you sit down, and all of a sudden, you're going to jump up speaking in tongues, running around the room, and, and you're just transformed into a new person miraculously. That's not what happens. But just like it says here, it renews our mind. It brings remembrance to the things God has done. You're thinking about the things that God has done. You're constantly being reminded about the great things the Lord has done. It magnifies his deeds, and it puts into perspective his worth, how worthy he is. And in turn, how much we rely on him, how much we need him, what our, uh, our state is, admitting our need and helplessness uh, for him. And then that motivates us to love him more. That motivates us to align our, our will with his, to change our lives, to change our actions, to do the things that he has said, John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. When we, when we sing and pray and meditate on the things that God has done, we are going to love him more. And that's going to motivate us to keep his commandments. And that is going to motivate us to change our lives to follow his will. And that is what I believe Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the true worship that the Father is seeking the worshipers that the Father is seeking. It's worshiping in a way that changes you. It's a mechanism that God designed in each of us, in our spirit, that when we do those things, that when we break out of our own shell, when we stop focusing on ourselves, our pride, our selfishness, get out of our own comfort zone and, 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 and stop worrying about those things, that then we focus on God. We remember and meditate him. And we will be motivated to change our lives and align with him. What's the danger of not being a true worshiper? 
What's the danger of not truly worshiping God? We've talked a lot about the benefits, but think back to the people in Israel, God's people. One of their biggest problems over and over is that they forgot God. They forgot who he was. He was not a part of their lives. They wouldn't teach their children about God. They relied on themselves and did only what they thought was right, disregarding what was true, disregarding what was commanded. They worshiped all sorts of idols, but they ignored God. And because of that, they lost the knowledge. They lost the motivation to live obedient lives. And that is at stake. If we do not live a life of true worship, truly focused on the Father. Your first step to becoming a true worshiper is completely submitting to his will and obedience and remembering the things that he has done and, and, and submitting yourself in, in obedience to him. And you can do that tonight. If you believe that he is the son of God, you can confess that tonight. You can repent of your sins and be baptized for the remission of those sins and there's no greater way to worship him than by putting on, uh, putting to death your old man of sin, rising up out of the water, renewed, having your sins forgiven. Please come tonight, take that first step if, if you haven't and you, you need to. If you are a child of God and you have done those things, but there is sin in your life, you, you, you've let the sin back in and, and you're distracted. You're not focusing on the Lord. This is a chance to, to make things right as well. And we would love to pray with you. We'd love to help you in whatever way we can. So if, if you need, need our help, need our prayers, please come forward as we sing the song. Okay.